0: Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista. And today I'm joined by a good friend of the show, Ali Vargas, who is the co co-fo- founder of the very important independent news website, Causachu News, based in Bolivia. And they've been doing important reporting in the past few weeks on what is essentially a new coup attempt. Now, this November, this October, November is actually the third anniversary of the coup, the briefly successful fascist coup in Bolivia in 2019, in which far-right extremists from these gangs, largely based in the city of Santa Cruz, which we're going to talk about today, many of these gangs, they they quite literally do Nazi salutes, and they have their origins in fascist groups that came from Europe after World War II, especially from Croatia, like the Ostasha. So when I say that they're fascist, it's not an insult. It's not hyperbolic. They're quite literally linked to people like Klaus Barbie and a bunch of these former Nazis who fled to Latin America after World War II. And in 2019, these fascist gangs played a key role in the briefly successful coup that overthrew the democratically elected socialist president, Evo Morales, who was the first ever indigenous president of a majority indigenous country. And now, exactly three years later, these same fascist gangs, largely based in the city of Santa Cruz, the separatist stronghold, They've been using extreme forms of violence to try to overthrow the government. And we saw this November an extreme form of this when some of these fascist gangs, they burned down the headquarters of the Peasants Union in Santa Cruz. Now, of course, fascists, what they always do is they target working class institutions. And this is not only a union representing workers' power, but specifically a peasants union. And of course, peasants and farmers in Bolivia are also disproportionately uh indigenous in, in a majority indigenous country, whereas many of these thugs and these fascist gangs are descendants of European colonialists who are lighter-skinned Bolivians. So we we have some reporting that that I've been following from Kausaun um, News, which Ali is the co-founder of. People should go check out their website. KawasachuNews.com, And they've been reporting regularly on some of the far-right attacks on health workers, on union organizers, on indigenous leaders. I mean, this is an example of the kind of fascist street violence that that set the stage for the coup in October and November of 2019. So Ali, thanks for joining me. Um, uh, For people who don't know, I just wanted to give a basic overview there. Um, this is the third anniversary of the coup in Bolivia. Um, you know, you've lived in Bolivia for several years. I visited Bolivia and I went to Sencata, the site of the infamous Sencata massacre. The, the, the violence of the 2019 coup very much lives in the historical memory and the, the culture of Bolivia today. People remember just three years ago the dozens of people who were killed by the coup regime backed by these fascist thugs. Before we talk, talk about you know, the latest coup attempt, let's just talk about the third anniversary that we're seeing this October and November and how Bolivians are responding to this the, the renewed violence on this anniversary.
1: Hi, Ben. Thanks for uh, having me on. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, three years uh, since the, the coup, uh, two years since the recovery, the restoration, of democracy with uh, the victory of President Luis Arce in 2020 um well, on October 2020 with 55% of the vote um you know in, a, in an election where all the media including international media uh including all the polls said that uh the movement towards socialism wouldn't win in the first round and then they got uh almost double the vote of the second uh, candidate Carlos Mesa on the 28 and I think it's, it's interesting to see what forces are still alive today. Uh, the movement towards socialism, I've, you know, I've said it on, on lots of occasions, the reason it didn't just disappear after the coup, after the persecution, is because it's an alliance, it's not formal political parties, it's an alliance of social movements, including uh, workers' unions, uh, campesino unions, uh, etc., indigenous movements. And when... Um, when the coup took place even though they persecuted leaders and uh, you know over a thousand people were arrested in uh, the aftermath of the coup uh, two massacres as you mentioned in Sinkata Saka, in and uh, Sakaba and it didn't the, the movement didn't disappear because it exists in every town in every Union branch in every uh, even in every small village so it it, it wasn't possible for them to, to lock up everyone of course so it's a force that still exists today whereas the other people who took part in that election let's have a look at them carlos mesa second place he was um you know really really the state department candidate sort of uh, i'll describe him a, a, as a liberal um, uh, not a fascist but a sort of a, you know a capitalist liberal and who was part of the coup in 2019 was probably the more moderate end of that movement that included real fascists that we'll get on to and his part he set up a new party called Comunidad Ciudadana and that basically doesn't really exist uh, now it, they have of course people in Congress uh, senators etc but they don't have any actual members any actual supporters that are outside um you know the the, the payroll of, of of Congress and and of course that means that when the, when there's next elections they'll disappear. And this is what always happens in Bolivia. There's always, every single election is uh, just new parties completely. All the ones that had seats in Congress before just disappear because they, they just don't have members. So someone else comes on the scene, sets up a new party, they get people in Congress and the cycle just goes on. Um, and the only constant being, of course, the movement towards socialism. The third place, it, Carlos Mesa got 28, I think 20% of the vote in that election. And um, Third place, with like seven percent, if I uh, can remember correctly, was Fernando Camacho, who was uh, who's based in Santa Cruz. I should mention that Carlos Mesa is La Paz. He's the representative of the uh, of the bourgeoisie in the Andean west of the country. This is important. This regional divide is important. Fernando Camacho is a guy, um, who, yeah, who's who's more traditionally uh, fascist who was president of uh, what's called the Civic Committee of Santa Cruz, which is essentially a committee of uh, the biggest landowners and uh, you know industrialists in Santa Cruz. And they have numerous sort of... Um, oh, 14% I underestimated <laughs> him. Um, yeah, uh, they have number of, sort of violent groups at their command, including a group called the Union Juvenil Crucenista, it was identified by uh, the HEAE report, which is the independent um, sort of human rights report commissioned by the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, uh, identified in that report as a paramilitary uh, group. And that needs to be disbanded essentially both to protect democracy and protect um, people's rights, especially in the city of Santa Cruz, because these groups are used by businessmen like Camacho to uh, just cause terror um you know uh, their favorite tactic that we've been seeing the past few weeks as well and it was the same thing during the coup itself was uh you know young men blocking roads uh, a lot of the time charging people you know five one dollar two dollars uh to, to you know to walk past their sort of little barricade and if you don't if you don't comply or if you make clear your opposition to what they're doing, then uh you'll uh you'll meet the hard end of a, of a baseball bat or other sort of uh, sticks sometimes clubs with nails on them this sort of thing highly highly violent armed group um which yeah which even the inter-american commission of human rights which is part of the oas it's not you know in any way uh, a pro mass or pro uh, left organization even they identified them as a paramilitary group uh, that needs to be disbanded um so yeah that is uh, a bit of background on on some of the people that took part in 29 in the um, uh, elections of 2020 took part in the coup uh and who are still on the political scene but in um you know in, in, a, in a very different context now
0: yeah and and we saw in the election results that Camacho the candidate who represents these far-right gangs In based in Santa Cruz, he couldn't even get 15% of the vote. So we're talking about a very small minority of the population. No, Those are just the people who voted for him, which, I mean, the percentage of people who are willing to go out in the streets and commit violence as part of his movement is even tinier. We're talking about a, a tiny percentage of the population. And they think that they have the right to overthrow a government that clearly won this this election under extreme circumstances in a coup regime in which all of the media was against the movement towards socialism party, MAS, in which the regime, the coup regime, uh, which was completely unelected, was threatening the MAS and their, act, and their supporters and activists, and they still got 55% of the vote. I mean, it's it's a very clear sign of which side is actually democratic. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about, you mentioned the, the uh, youth union the Santa Cruz youth union which like i said i mean when i talk talked about their roots in fascism that wasn't being hyperbolic it's not me insulting them they are literally fascist when i say fascist that's not an insult that is a term of description and here is a video from a Santa Cruz youth union funeral and each one when they go in you know, the ser- funeral ceremony when they go up to the the body They do a Hitler salute, a fascist style salute. Where do those phalanges salutes come from? It comes from the so-called Bolivian socialist phalange, which was extremely anti-socialist. It had that name because it has its roots back in national socialism. They are literal fascists and they have links to European fascists who, who migrated to Bolivia after losing World War II. And that's why they do these phalanges salutes. They are literal fascists. And this is in a region in Santa Cruz where, as the journalist Matt Kennard has showed, as I've been reporting on this, I know you've been reporting on it, these separatist forces like the the Santa Cruz Youth Union and the Civic Committee of santa the pro Santa Cruz Civic Committee, which is led which was led by uh, people like Camacho who are integral in the coup, historically, these groups have been supported by the u s government We have Documents, State Department cables from WikiLeaks, showing that these literal fascist, Nazi saluting gangs have been supported historically by the U.S. government in order to try to destabilize the leftist government of the MAS. And this leads us to the latest acts of violence. I mentioned that that they burnt down the headquarters of a union of a uh, peasant union in Santa Cruz, and here you can see a, a Bolivian. Activist on Twitter talking about how the fact that the the, the Santa Cruz Youth Union, the fact that they b- attack and burn the headquarters of the the uh, workers union for peasant workers in Santa Cruz, is a clear sign of their racism. So let, let's talk a little bit more about this this uh, racist, blatant, fascist poly- political ideology of these groups that are attacking the government. I mean. Saying that they're anti-democratic is is probably a compliment for them. Like they don't even pretend to care about the indigenous majority. For them, Bolivia belongs to the light-skinned white European descendant Bolivians and the indigenous majority are barbaric in their view, basically.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, There's a, a specific history with fascism in Santa Cruz. And Bolivia's a very diverse country, sort of geographically and culturally. Um, so you know where I'm speaking to you from is La Paz, which is the Andean part of the country, Andean sort of half of the country. Uh, there's Bolivia has the Amazon, but a third of the country of the land is, is Amazon rainforest. Uh, there's like sort of desert type land that's in the south on the border of Argentina, uh, and then there's sort of the Amazon basin, sort of forest savanna type land, which is. Uh, Santa Cruz and it's just very different cultures you know 36 different uh, indigenous nations in Bolivia um which very 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 different for each other you know from Andes to Amazon to... and in Santa Cruz itself you have a lot of indigenous uh nation but you have uh, Guaranese uh, you have Ayorero and uh, and a few others and they they are indigenous to the to what is known, uh, known as Santa Cruz uh, and it was, but it was very sparsely populated for for most of Bolivia's history up until like the 70s. And Bolivia's wealth came from like the mining areas in the Andes part of the country, in places like Potosi, Oruro. And essentially, after World War II, what happened was um, a lot of you will know about the you know the histories of Nazis fleeing to Argentina or uh, Brazil, Chile you can even find like in Chile and Brazil there's even still a whole of towns of it's like German speakers uh all of them like you know, the descendants of of Nazis fled there and Bolivia didn't have as many German Nazis go there there was some you mentioned Klaus Barbie one of the top Nazis uh Generals but uh, the ones that came more were uh Ustase from you know what was then uh, Yugoslavia today Croatia and this was as Some of you know that they were considered by the German Nazis to be even more brutal than them. A lot of the German Nazis were shocked at how just how violent some of their sort of ethnic violence was. Um, how how particularly savage, more, even more savage and barbaric than than their own, than their own violence as, as Nazi Germans. And a lot of them fled, of course, uh, after you know Yugoslavia turned socialist. And yes, many came to, to Bolivia, and they were given free land for free. Large, huge areas of land: ten thousand hectares, twenty thousand hectares, thirty thousand hectares in Santa Cruz. Because one, there, there was a lot of free land, but also in a, lot, in a lot of cases these indigenous communities that I mentioned were expelled uh, to make way for for these Croatians. And that's why you get uh, in Santa Cruz in these groups like the Unión Juvenil Cruzanista, like you mentioned. Like the civic committee, half of them have Croatian names, including the the guy uh, the second, and yet the guy who was Jenny Nanić's economy minister at the end of her uh, regime it was a guy called Branko Marinković. Branko Marinković he used to be the the president of the civic committee. Um, you know, played a huge role. He was actually. You know, he escaped uh, the country uh, during Evo Morales' government and then he was brought back away uh, after the coup. He, he, he went, went to went.
0: Bolsonaro's Brazil, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Marinkovich was, of course, a very close ally of Camacho, who's the guy leading the violent attacks now.
1: Yeah, they come from the same organization, which is the Civic Committee, the, the Committee of the Landowners and Industrialists of Santa Cruz. So you have this connection with the, the creation, uh, creation fascism. Uh, there in, uh, in in the city of Santa Cruz, and a lot of you know their discourse will say that oh, you know if Andean Bolivians go there, indigenous Andean Bolivians, say ah, oh, you're they're migrating here. Uh, this is our land. We you know our this is our region when they themselves have Christians uh, first names and surnames. So this is the kind of uh, discourse that they have about who who Santa Cruz and who Bolivia belongs to. Uh, a lot of these people as well the, the youth union they don't uh, they don't want to be part of Bolivia they believe in separatism they want to have the Cruz to be an independent country um and they they came close to, to uh really making that a reality in 2009 when they essentially sort of declared a split but um that was defeated by the Morales's government and but yeah this uh that that they're the most extreme end of the of the Bolivian opposition the most violent part of the coup um and liberal the sort of liberal um uh, centrist types like Carlos Mesa although they are they don't share a lot of the views of this group but they've w- always been willing to work with them always been willing to have an alliance with them um both during the coup and the elections uh and and, and still now in, in these most recent protests and they is very traditional fascism, I think, because there is like using as well, using uh, what you would call the lumpen proletariat as shock troops for the interests of big business. So, a lot of the people during these recent protests and during the coup, I'd say a lot of them are not, are not ideologically fascist or right wing. A lot of them are street criminals, gang members, uh, you know, people. For for, um, small payments for drugs, uh, for for alcohol, they'll go and do this work for them. And you know we have been there. Um, You know our our co-founder Camila as well was reporting there in Santa Cruz. And a lot of these people that they're blocking roads is like 18 year olds in like flip flops and shorts and like a a fake uh, football shirt, like a fake Neymar shirt or something. They've got their face covered up holding a baseball bat like i don't think those people are you know have a defined political ideology that they're there as well to make money because they charge people to go and what does that money get spent of course alcohol uh you know all these sorts of things so a lot they they use these sorts of groups of football hooligans as well from the club oriente petrolero have a history of uh, this sort of violence paying them so that that's the kind of alliance that we're seeing right now
0: it's so similar to the coup attempt in Nicaragua in 2018, where they did exactly the same. You had, ideologically, you had far-right forces that were kind of guiding the coup attempt with the support of the U.S. government, of course, and weapons. But then they were paying all of these you know, common criminals and drug dealers and lumpen elements to, to you know, erect these violent barricades that they called tranques. It was the same tactics used in the 2017 coup attempt in Venezuela in the so-called Guarimbas. And a lot of the the so-called Guarimberos, they were just like young kids. You know, a lot of them were, you know, just criminals, but also just people who were getting paid and they had fun and, you know, just throwing rocks and throwing Molotov cocktails and shooting mortar cannons and setting things on fire and laying off bombs like it was fun for them. And they get money and drugs and booze. In the case of Nicaragua, I mean, there are cases... There's evidence of like video showing that sometimes people would show up in vans and they would just dump a bunch of alcohol and drugs and also guns during the coup attempt to all of these thugs to carry out the coup. So they're they're the muscle behind the coup. And what you described, it's so similar to coups throughout history, especially especially U.S.-backed coups, CIA-backed coups. For instance, we know the same thing happened in the famous CIA coup in uh, Iran in 1953 against Mossadegh. There were a lot of you know violent gangs in the streets just carrying out this violence. And of course, the same exact thing happened in 2019 in the Bolivia coup. So I mean, there's so many historical echoes of this. Also the 2014 coup in Ukraine. Um, what you said is important about how there are these like neoliberal technocrats, people like Carlos Mesa, who are clearly the kind of more respectable, uh, media friendly figures. Who are more publicly backed by the U.S. in elections? The same thing happened in 2014 in Ukraine, right? So the neo-Nazi, f- neo-fascist groups are the violent, you know, muscle behind the coup, and then they install Poroshenko, who's a, you know, he's a he's a right-wing, uh, he, right, politically he's right-wing, but he's also just a neoliberal billionaire technocrat who just wants to privatize everything. So it's so similar. I mean, um, I w- I wanted to point out one other thing when you were talking about a lot of these Bolivian coup figures of Croatian descent. I mean, not, you know, not to single out all the, the people of Croatian descent, I guess um, you know the new uh, center-left uh, liberal social democratic president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, is also of Croatian descent, but he's not a fascist. He's just a liberal. But um, in, in Bolivia, in the case of the coup, the, you know, people probably know Zeynina Anes, who was the de facto leader, the de facto president on paper, She's the one who went to the presidential palace with a giant Bible and said that, you know, um, Jesus has re-entered the, the palace. And, you know, using this very racist, anti-Indigenous rhetoric about Christianity, kind of like the crusaders. Well, the real power during the coup was not necessarily her. She was more of a figurehead. It was the minister of government, Arturo Murillo, and Arturo Murillo managed all the state security services and the police. And what's not that well known is his other, his other last name is Prizic, So he's also of Croatian descent, allegedly linked to Croatian fascists. So, I mean, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I hate to just call out all the Croatians, but uh, when, when you start noticing a pattern here of people whose family members were Nazi collaborators that, that fled to Latin America, I mean, you can start understanding where some of these far-right political groups come from. Now, I want to talk about the tactics that have been used more recently this November. They're not the same tactics as the 2019 coup. 2019 coup, starting in October, was uh, the tactic was that the Organization of American States, which is, of course, largely dominated by the United States, it was created by the U.S. government, alleged falsely that Evo Morales stole the October 2019 election, which is completely absurd. He won the election. And then what happens is they spread false allegations of fraud that were completely debunked later on. And then there are all these street violent elements came out, like the gangs and these thugs we were talking about, and started you know, burning down government buildings and erecting these barricades. The tactics today are different. The tactics today are, well, they are still burning down buildings and using violence, but ostensibly the strategy used by Camacho, who's the really the coup leader, is that they're protesting the census. So can you talk about the census controversy and then also talk about the, um, the paro? The paro, it's kind of like a strike, but it's not really a strike because they're not workers. It's just like a shutdown, basically. They had a lockdown that actually just ended. It's ending this week. They had a lockdown for about a month where they tried to shut down the country. And they didn't really fail to do that. They they felt they didn't do that. They failed to do that. And then they tried to focus more on Santa Cruz with the so-called paro or lockout or strike. So talk about the strategy that they're using now and how it differs from 2019.
1: Yes, I guess starting with the the issue of the the census, um, I'm sure this will appear sort of quite strange for a lot of people viewing because I mean, where, where has there ever been conflicts of any kind in regards to the national census. I think most a lot of people don't even know it's happening until they they get the actual forms in and they have to fill in their information. It's not not considered a political issue pretty much anywhere in the world, but here um, it's being used as the excuse to do what they're doing now. And I say that because it's, it, I, I you know, it's clear that that's not the real issue. This is the protest of the past past month has been an attempt to destabilize the government. Uh, you know, to, to bring down the government and the census the of the census was just a pretext but their argument is so essentially is uh, the census is going to be held in 2024 uh by the government and that was you know signed off by all of the st- sort of state governors in the country uh believe he has nine departments eight of them uh, signed up to this and six uh yeah, two thirds of the state governors are actually from the opposition, so they signed up for this as well. The only ones that were opposed was the Department of Santa Cruz, their governor, and uh, it, it's. They say that because Santa Cruz has grown in the past few years, grown in population, that they deserve you know they deserve more a larger share of government uh, resources, and they want it to be brought forward. They want it to ha- take place in two thousand twenty three rather than 2024 and the, the date they propose is literally just like six months before the government's proposed date so you know really just no difference um no you know as, as important as a national census is for a government to plan public policies etc you know this is something that only affects people in an indirect way uh and after you know after many years so uh, it's clear that it's not the real issue and you know, here in La Paz, well, in, in Congress, people talking about ah oh, the, the cartographic map and the, the, these technical things. But do you think that the guy in the in, in the name Neymar jersey, uh, the 18-year-old that's drinking in the street uh, at these protests, do you think they care? Ne- they think they know what cartography is? No. So this is it. it, it was not the real issue. Um, and also, it's important to note that Santa Cruz is not the only area of Bolivia that's grown. For example, one of the places i've seen the most growth is the city of el alto which is next to la paz it's a majority indigenous city. It's had a huge economic boom in the past 10 years and has absolutely ballooned in size um from migration from the council rural aymara areas of la paz to to the city of el alto but they you know they they need a national census as well because they'll be owed a greater share of uh, central government resources, but they haven't been part of of this uh, at any stage of these mobilizations at any stage. They agree with the government's position of um, of the date. So that's the issue of the census. Uh, you know it's, it's I bore myself even just talking about it because it's it is just a te- it's it's a technical issue rather than a political one in, in my view. but yeah, man, the the tactics in Santa Cruz itself that we've seen in the past month, are pretty much actually exactly the same as what we're seeing in the 2019 coup. Um, you know, as we were saying before, the blocking the roads, the violence, etc. The thing is, changed, the, the difference now is that this is only taking place in one city. It's not taking place anywhere else. This sort of thing that's happening now in Santa Cruz is taking place in La Paz, in, Concha, in in all of the big cities during the 2019 coup. But now this year is only in one city. And, um yeah they, they tried to uh make it national there was right-wing groups in each area that tried to call a rally to to, to begin it i remember they called one in la paz a few weeks ago uh they came to, to congress to announce it and everything uh, 6 p.m at the central plaza i went there at 6 p.m there's no one there the only person there was like a street singer singing reggaeton and there's some a bit of audience i thought that those those were the protesters but um i think i don't think they were there's basically no one there it didn't work because it's a regional issue they during the course of this past month the protesters these groups in santa cruz have been bringing forth the most racist uh narrative possible saying you know ah we're being invaded by these indigenous andeans they're coming here blah 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 and that insults even the right-wing groups people like carlos mesa the bourgeoisie in The West, you know, in the Andes, uh, in the Andean cities, because they're they're Andean and you're insulting their culture as well. So how are you going to unite with uh, people that are just every single day on TV saying um, just the most blatantly racist things about the place where you're from? And even if you wanted to unite with them, then you'd be seen as bad, you'd be seen as as ridiculous as uniting with these sorts of people. So this is divided. The, the opposition along regional lines as a divide that already existed but is now even more uh, accentuated and yeah and I think their own racism is is uh, their the biggest obstacle and yeah they're, they're to the point where they're, they're racist amongst each other to each other uh, that's the state of the of the opposition
0: yeah there are a lot of parallels of course to the 2019 coup and one of them is also there has been this drive that is not nearly as successful this time to try to bring about international intervention. And if people probably remember that starting in August, around August of 2019, just leading up to the coup, which was clearly planned for months beforehand, there was this campaign SOS Bolivia, which is like what every right wing uh, coup plotter gr- um, coup plotting group does in Latin America. They, ha- they had SOS Nicaragua, SOS Venezuela, and then they did SOS uh, Bolivia. And then it started, you, people probably remember, when Evo Morales was president and there were these fires in the Amazon that were largely started by the far-right president of Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro. Of course, the Amazon, it's its not just in one country. And there are these big fires. And it, they could—you know fires don't respect borders. They can cross over. And Bolsonaro was encouraging all of these big ag corporations that were largely his funders to just destroy land and and you know expel indigenous people who live there and just create monoculture crops for you know agri- agro export um and what happened is yeah so go ahead did you say what uh,
1: yeah yeah um the uh, people would have remembered like you mentioned the issues about the deforestation there is deforestation going on in Bolivia and who's the ones doing it is these Croatian landlords they're the ones that are clearing forests uh for, for for their cattle production etc so is they are the ones the causing the problem and then they use that as a, a stick to beat the government with when it's them they're the ones that they yeah
0: it's incredible I mean the cynicism of it so in 2019 there were these forest fires and then there was this campaign trying to blame Evo Morales and an environmentalist for the forest fires which is completely absurd And then you had SOS Bolivia, and then you start having these groups like um, uh, Rios de Pie, which were like these foreign funded NGOs funded by the US and Spain that were doing these campaigns of like saying, help us, uh, the Evo regime is repressing our rights. And that's, of course, something similar that we see now. I want to get up a tweet here from a right wing um, lawmaker in Bolivia who Ironically, you know, we were talking about the kind of de facto alliance between the fascists led by Camacho. I think some of them are are even called the Camachistas, right? Followers of Camacho. You can see that this is a a, um, a right wing lawmaker from the neoliberal center right party, Comunidad Ciudadana, which is the party of Carlos Mesa. Her name is Luisa Nayar Sosa. And so she's been joining in this campaign, obviously, although they're like the more technocratic face. They're not the ones doing the violence in the streets. And this is a, a video she posted on October 31st. And it shows her with lawmakers, right all from they're all, of course, right-wing lawmakers from Mexico, Peru, and Costa Rica. And she says, we want the international community to know about the state terrorism that the regime of Luis Arce is carrying out against the people of Bolivia. So, of course, people, if we all know, Luis Arce is the current president of Bolivia. He was democratically elected in the massive landslide election in 2020. She's accusing, this is part of this campaign where these lawmakers, again, this is a sitting lawmaker in the government. She's accusing the mass led forces in the government, the president, of state terrorism and calling on the international community. And when she says that, we all know what it means because she, she, she also tagged them in here. She means Luis Almagro and the Organization of American States, and Human Rights Watch, the the exact same forces that were behind, that were instrumental in the 2019 coup. I guess the only difference now is that they're being much less responsive this time. So go ahead. I mean, what what do you make of this attempt to try to bring international intervention in response to so-called state terrorism?
1: Yeah. Luis, I see her all the time pretty much every day in, in Congress she's so annoying and she, she used to be a uh participant in a like TV game shows you know there's ones where people like jumping over obstacles and stuff um and that's where I think that's where she sort of started out um but yes yeah, it's, it's uh, there has been an attempt to try and you know um the SOS I've seen SOS Santa Cruz people tagging the American um, charged affairs, people chagging the, uh, you know, US, US government uh, Twitter accounts and things. I don't think it's been, um, it, it was never going to be that effective because I th- I don't think anyone outside Bolivia is going to care about their cause, even if they are, you know, even if they do oppose the government of Luis Arce, because they're talking about, um, you know, bringing forward a census six months. Is the U.S. government going to go and, you know, uh, launch its intervention over something like this? Like, it's just even international media, I think, hasn't really uh, cared or given it much coverage uh, f- to them, uh, especially compared to the coup in 2019, which was much more political because it was against the whole government, against Evo Morales. And that, of course, got a lot of international media coverage, very you know, sympathetic international media coverage, um, you know, t- t- the US government itself obviously intervened on that but I think it's this is uh you know I think they're they're just making themselves look a little bit silly with this one but uh yeah I think they they all they wanted as well uh they would have liked one of their own people to to have died during this time um they would have used that to try and speak to the international community uh and yeah i think that a lot of the violence i think was aimed at that as well not just the targets of the violence but they were trying to uh you know they they, they wanted a martyr so that they could go to the united states and say look, look what they're doing so, but you know they they weren't given that and yeah i think this will this will be forgotten in like a, f- a few months by the by the state department and the people they work with
0: yeah i mean uh they're kind of so just goofy and irrelevant that it's kind of just not even worth talking about them. They're begging for attention. And this is all what they're trying to do with this violence and failed coup attempt. But I mean, after doing a coup three years ago, you can just repeat the same thing. It's not going to work. But I mean, I I want to talk a little bit more about Luis Arce and some of the things that his government is doing. But before that, I just want to raise another really important point here, which is that you know, this, these groups may be very fringe. They clearly have support of less than 15% of the population at max. Again, max. Uh, Camacho only got 14% of the vote. So we're talking about a tiny fringe of the country, but they're very violent and they've shown that they're willing to use weapons. And this is a report that was published in Prensa Latina back in January. And it was about how the Bolivian government it uh, intercepted weapon shipments from the United States that were going to Santa Cruz. Now, we don't know who was sending the weapons. We don't know if it was the US government. We don't know if it was you know, far-right Bolivian elements or maybe far-right Cuban elements or who knows, forces within the United States. But we do know that these weapons were sent from the United States to Santa Cruz. I'm wondering if you know of any other you know, allegations of foreign weapons flowing in or money to to support these fascist gangs, at the very least, just to try to destabilize the government, because they know they probably can't overthrow the government. But at least they can cause a big headache for the mosque government.
1: Uh, yeah, in this one specifically, there was an attempt by uh, these groups in Santa Cruz to get help from Brazil, from Bolsonaro's Brazil santa cruz is actually you know the department is on the border of brazil she has a very large border um and a lot of them obviously have you know especially the the these comitê civico people the the industrialists etc they have business in brazil a lot of links a lot of a lot of the people of agnes's regime went to brazil there's two of them one the former defense minister julio lopez who you know, is uh, has a huge responsibility in carrying out the two massacres. He's currently hiding in Brazil. I don't know if he's going to stay there while once Lula is sworn in, but he's there at the moment. Uh, and the other one was the former head of the police uh th- that carried out the massacres. He's also in Brazil, and and Bolsonaro himself confirmed it. They. Uh, I think they're probably not very happy about that because they wanted to keep a low profile but he sort of bragged about how he's protecting the these uh you know these people and the president so the president of the sort of State Congress I don't know what you call it uh in English the Asamblea Departamental, like the local sort of uh sort of uh Congress and the president of that is a guy called there's another Croatian Zvonko Matkovic um he's he traveled to brazil during this time i think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago he traveled to brazil um with you know just at not public agenda at all nothing he did there was publicized um and you know the we believe that it was to try and bring funds possibly even arms to to santa cruz and it would be pretty you know since they do share a border Um, there would be a number of ways to do that so yeah this one they they were they were were going for support from brazil brazil itself obviously they've been quite busy with their own things going on uh bolsonaro has you know facing an election now i understand he's like ill from some uh, mystery disease but yeah so I, i don't know how you know we don't know exactly how much support they get but they've they've always been there during the coup itself as well as a supporter of the of the opposition in santa cruz
0: you alluded to something very important that uh, is another detail that i should mention before we talk about odyssey's government which is that there has been a, a separatist movement based in santa cruz largely led by a lot of these fascist elements you know people like camacho branco marinkovic and i mentioned that the journalist matt kennard has done really good reporting on the twenty, sorry, on the 2009 coup attempt and the assassination attempt against President Evo Morales by some of these fascist elements that had guns, and they were part of the Santa Cruz separatist movement. And if you look at the map, I mean, it sounds crazy to say that there's a a region, what they call a department, which, in the context of the U.S., would be like a state or just a region of Bolivia. It sounds crazy to say that they're trying to be independent, but if you look at a map, I mean. They actually could probably make it work because Santa Cruz is a very large area in terms of landmass and because it does have the borders with Brazil and Paraguay. So it's, it's not like it's not like it's a state right in the middle of the country. Now, of course, whether or not they could actually get enough political support for it is a whole other thing, because like, we've been talking about how these fascist separatist forces are very fringe, even within the city of Santa Cruz itself. So I'm wondering if you think that or what is the current state of the separatist movement? What do Bolivians think about this movement today?
1: Well, it's a a factor that unites the opposition in Santa Cruz. Um, It gets them fired up. It gives them a cause, an identity. uh, And it's useful for, for, for people like Camacho to consolidate their own power within their city. But it's. It it really destroys the rest of the opposition because you know it it means that you can't have a national position to the the mass because you know the right wing fascist groups whatever in the rest of the country they can never agree with what these Santa Cruz people say because they're arguing to break up the country and that is that's a no go obviously doesn't matter you know whether you're left or right doesn't matter uh in the rest of the country. T- absolutely, one hundred percent opposed to that. So that's a factor that divides the opposition. And that's why you had the, in the elections both Carlos Mesa and Camacho running, and uh, you know a lot of people were saying you're dividing the vote. We can't have two candidates, we need to have one anti mus candidate. Um, that's the only way we we'll win. Of course, in the end, it didn't really matter because even if they had, if, if all of the votes had been added up, it still wouldn't be enough. But you know. That, that that's going to happen again and again. It's going to happen at every election because they're, they're, just, they're just fundamentally divided on this question and they, they can't unite. But as much as it, you know, uh, destroys the opposition, the national opposition, for people like Camacho, it's good because it is just a cause that can rally his own people, you know, people in, in, inside, the opposition inside Santa Cruz. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty much a cultural movement at this point. It's very powerful narrative for them but it weakens the rest of the opposition
0: now i want to spend the last 15 minutes or so here talking about the government of arce and the movement towards socialism party because you know why is the the right wing so angry because they're very popular and they've been able to implement a very progressive leftist program and the current president luis arce was the economic minister under evo morales he was responsible for creating the Bolivian economic model, which is very unique. And you at, at Causacho News, you, you all have been doing excellent reporting on some of these very unique elements of the Bolivian economic model. Like um, here's an article about Bolivia launching its own state-owned coffee factory or Bolivia's state glass factory making wine bottles or Bolivia launching state-owned manufacturing plants. So it, it has an an alternative model to capitalism and neoliberalism that has been successful. Bolivia has some of the lowest inflation, not only in Latin America, but in the entire world, significantly lower inflation than the United States itself. And it also has economic growth and and declining inequality. So can you talk about who Luis Arise is and what his government program has been like in Bolivia?
1: Yeah, I think the most important uh, story of, you know of the past two years uh for bolivia is the is the uh, the rest the, the return of economic growth. So as you mentioned before Luis has used to be the economy minister of, of Eva Morales. He was the only minister that was there for the whole of Evan Morales' government. Um he was only not there for one year and that's because he he had cancer and uh he, he beat cancer in one year and came back as economy minister. And yeah, uh, the the model has always been based off of um, nationalizing first natural resources, so that the government has funds to invest in development, you know, infrastructure, etc. Because there's no other ways really for Latin American governments to to get the enough funds to really fund development, because you know. I know, in perhaps in European or Western countries, uh, the left will say, "Tax the rich, you know, raise taxes on the rich, on the middle class, whatever, um, and then f- use those funds to, you know, do social programs, whatever." But in a in a Latin America, in a global South country, how much tax are you going to raise? First of all, it's very much easier to dodge tax in the global South country because the state is weaker. Second of all how there's not as many rich people as there would be in a, in a global north country and the rich people there are, aren't are as rich as the people you'd get in uh, in the US or, or Europe. So you, you're getting less, you've got less income. The majority of the population don't pay any tax, not because they're tax dodged or anything, but people work in the informal economy. You know, the, the woman that sells uh, a lunch, you know, from a cart in the street She's not giving out receipts. She's not, uh, you know, got a registered business. She's just selling things for, for you know, here and there, spends that money back in, uh, in the, inside the formal economy. So none of that is taxed. So where where are you going to get money? From? Where's the government going to get money from to do uh, good things? The only way the, in the Evo Morales, Luis Alcimodo, was to nationalize natural resources, and that provides the funds, and yeah, massive investment in uh, infrastructure, especially Bolivia had virtually no infrastructure before the Morales. Very few roads connecting. Um, yeah, almost no no progress. And when you don't have connection between the countries, it's very difficult for the economy to grow because you can't move things about, um and you know people can't move about. Very very difficult. Now that there is top quality infrastructure that allows the rest of the economy, including even the private sector to grow. And yeah, that's been the the most important part. Also this, like you mentioned, the state after the nationalization of natural resources was launching more state companies. And there's a lots of, you know, I could go for ages talking about how many different ones there are, but there's uh, a lot of it is based around processing of agricultural goods, because what you get in a lot of Latin American countries is things like, Foods that are exported, like nuts, or uh, at the moment the new hipster one is acai, that's people love in, uh, in the global north. What happens is that you they, they take the raw material, and then they send it to a factory in France or whatever, and that's where they make the ice creams or creams or whatever, the value-added products. But what Bolivia is doing is breaking that cycle by p- putting the factories in Bolivia. Made by the state because so the free market is not going to do it because it's easier to, to send it to to a european country to process so like the acai there's a there's one in the in the amazon uh, i got to visit actually in the in the department of Pando near the border of brazil they've got a factory there that processes the SAE makes it into the pulp the juice and that and then they can sell that for obviously more than what you get just selling the the raw acai berries and, and Brazil nuts, as well. As, that's an interesting one I always like to talk about. Brazil nuts, it's, that's what it's called in English, it's not, what, not its name in Spanish. But Bolivia now exports more Brazil nuts than Brazil. Why is that? Because in Evo Morales' government, they created factories in, in this department in Pando um, to process, package, et cetera, the nuts, ch- you know, chocolate nuts, whatever, creating those value added products and then exporting them. Uh, ready-made, whereas Brazil just you know it, it doesn't invest in those communities in the uh, in the Capucino communities that collect the nuts and invest in processing of it. So Bolivia, smaller country, actually exports more Brazil nuts than Brazil.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of those funny ironies. I mean, uh, the economic model in in Bolivia is really fascinating. I mean, we'll talk about lithium in a second. It's a key element of this. You could, you could say that it's similar to the Venezuelan model in that Venezuela for over 100 years has been largely a petro state well before Hugo Chavez was born, in which the state funded most of its finances through the export of oil. But the difference is before Hugo Chavez was president, pretty much all of that oil revenue went to fund the elite capitalist oligarchy, and the vast majority of working class Venezuelans didn't receive any support. Whereas the state now, since the Bolivarian Revolution, uses that oil revenue money to fund social programs. And of course, in Bolivia, it's similar with lithium. But one difference is that that Luis Arce has created a very substantial model. I mean, he is himself a trained economist. He has a PhD. And I want to highlight, I did a previous report. I have a a video and a podcast in which I translated parts of um, most of the speech that Luis Arce gave at the United Nations General Assembly this year. And he he presented a 14-point socialist program, which is really incredible, very ambitious. But I want to look at this the economic element, where he ta- he called for rebuilding the productive and economic, economic capacities of the country, of the countries of the periphery, hurt by the logic of the unrestrained concentration of capital. And then he talks about how following the recovery of democracy in 2020. Bolivia returned to its social, communitarian, productive economic model, a sovereign economic model in which we don't accept and we will not accept impositions of the International Monetary Fund. So clearly rejecting the IMF neoliberal model. And then he also said that the Bolivian economic model, here he summarized it, is based, quote, on the active role of the state in the economy. In the nationalization of our strategic natural resources, the articulation of all forms of economic organization, the strengthening of public investment, import substitution industrialization, the dynamization of the internal market, uh, productive diversification, security with food sovereignty, redistribution of revenues, the struggle against poverty and inequalities. And he also pointed out that part of this model is influenced by Bolivia's indigenous communal, communal traditions. So, I mean, I think, I think Bolivia is very inspiring in that sense, because this is a model that can be adopted by other countries. And we do see some kind of some economic collaboration. Um, So I mentioned lithium, of course, Bolivia has the world's largest lithium reserves and it's been recently building electric cars Challenging, you know, these very expensive luxury cars like from Tesla, right? And in collaboration with Mexico, Bolivia is producing a, a small electric car called the Quantum, which is a, around 6000 U.S. dollars. It's the cheapest car in the market. And here is the Mexican foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, sharing a, a video boasting of their collaboration between Mexico and Bolivia to build these electric cars. So this is another example of Bolivia developing its economy using its natural resources but also doing it in collaboration with other countries in Latin America. So maybe you can talk about not only Aris's economic model but his uh, commitment to regional integration in Bolivia.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's a, the the issue of the lithium is probably the most important one at the moment because as many people know, lithium is incredibly important because uh, for making electric cars, which are likely to be the future, uh, for making batteries, uh, like phone batteries and stuff. So it's going to be incredibly valuable. It already is incredibly valuable, but a lot of countries, you know, are only just beginning to to develop that it now, including Bolivia. And you know, for the easiest thing for the government to do would be to just privatize lithium. Let the uh whatever elon musk's gigafactories or whatever it is to come and just take all the lithium and uh process it in the united states because they already have the or australia i think he does it in because they already have the, the infrastructure to do it um and to just to sell it as so salt lithium comes from salt and they bolivia has these uh, amazing uh, salt flats in the town of uyuni uh probably Probably the most Bolivia's best tourist attraction as well. Really beautiful. And yeah, these things, which is what Chile is doing right now, because Chile has lithium as well. And the borage, they're just scooping up the salt, selling it for, for however many pennies uh, you can get for that on, on on the international markets. But Bolivia's vision is to have a nationalized, develop it within Bolivia, have a state plant, state factories, uh, creating the products, creating car batteries, creating uh I, I remember they they just recently showed the the prototype for you know a portable charger for your phones, things like this, but big batteries that can power a house. Uh you know that this sort of finished products that you can then sell for obviously much uh you know, much, much more money. It brings in a lot more resources to the country and the money from Those exporting those products will go obviously to the state, which can then go to further invest in in infrastructure development, etc. So that's, but to do that is going to require huge amounts of investment, a lot of technical knowledge that um, you know does not doesn't exist uh, to, to the degree needed within Bolivia. So they have to cooperate with, for example, Argentina cooperating with argentina at the moment which they've kind of sort of part privatized their lithium but with the state still playing a role so there's cooperation with argentina the co- lot of cooperation with mexico mexico basically have this exact same vision as bolivia when it comes to lithium they want to do exactly the same thing so there's going to be a lot of interchange you know um, technical experts etc sharing of knowledge uh the only one where there's not a lot of uh, cooperation with at the moment is Chile? They're not really cooperating with anyone because they don't really care. They they just want to export the raw material, and they're already doing that. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people. You get these like journalists in you know in Bolivia or other countries saying, "Oh, look, the Chileans are making more money off of lithium now than than Bolivia or Argentina or Mexico are." Oh, of course they are because it's very easy. You do it tomorrow. Bolivia can make. Uh, a lot of money tomorrow, just by letting the American companies come in and just take it, take it all out. That makes you some money, but if you can, you know, uh, divert, if, develop these processing plants to make the batteries, then you're going to make much more than just selling uh,
0: raw salt. Yeah, you have feedback loops within the economy. So not only are you just, I mean, if, if in the case of Chile, which also not only has big a lot, a lot, a lot of lithium, but also large copper reserves they just export those raw materials, which is what, you know, which is what the colonies did when they were, when countries were colonized by European colonialists, they exported raw materials and you don't develop your local economy. Whereas if you want true economic independence, you shouldn't just export the raw materials. You should use those to develop local economies, which create jobs. So it's also a sustainable form of economic development because once you run out of lithium or copper or oil, what are you going to do? I mean, obviously, it's going to be decades in the future. But the point is, you want to actually develop your economy, instead of just exporting the raw materials and not having any economic development. And in the case of Chile, I mean, you know, Boric is himself a deeply opportunistic politician. But also, he's just very compromised, or compromise isn't the right word. He's very, uh, his hands are tied, he can't really do, even if he were more ambitious, which I don't think he is, uh, he wouldn't, be able to do many other things. He wasn't able to pass the constitutional, uh, new constitutional referendum. He, uh, in, in that new constitution that was proposed, which wasn't just Boric, I mean, it was in general, just many different parties and political movements in Chile. They didn't even call for the nationalization of the lithium and the copper. It wasn't even on the table. So the right wing in Chile is still very much in charge, even though they're technically not in government they still are the ones determining what government policy is. And uh, in the case of Mexico, I mean, Mexico just this year, the Congress nationalized the lithium. So um, the last question I have for you, Ali, as you know, we're already at an hour as we wrap up here, is now that in Brazil, the most populous, largest country in Latin America, Lula da Silva is returning, the leftist former president, in my view, it's going to be a massive geopolitical shift for the region. It's going to have huge political and economic consequences for every country in Latin America. What do you see as a, a potential for future collaboration moving forward between, and in the collaboration between uh Brazil and Bolivia? Of course, they share a large border. In terms of economic collaboration, what, what kind of Comments have you heard so far from the Bolivian government and from Lula's team about plans that they have in the future?
1: Yeah, man, that's obviously huge for for Bolivia because share a massive border uh, with Brazil, um, and yeah, economically incredibly important, politically as well because now you're going to get uh, when Lula's sworn in, the the, f- the funding channels, the cooperation with Bolivia's opposition is going to. Be cut off which is very important uh believe it brazil is not going to be a, a refuge anymore for uh you know these uh, for, for people escaping justice like it is now in fact the the believing government uh formally sent the extradition request for the two uh figures involved in the massacres that i mentioned earlier they they, they filed it the day after the, the elections and i think they basically hadn't even bothered to, to ask for the extradition before that um, because you know it was it would be a waste of paper sending that to, to bolsonaro. but now that Lula's going to come in, the hope the hope is to be able to extradite those people and make them stand trial for the massacres that they they carried out though I guess maybe they'll they'll, they'll try and escape again to another right-wing country but um yeah, but economically very important because and in fact it's going to benefit Brazil as well because during this time, Obviously, relations have been terrible between bolivia and brazil and that has affected for example the sale of bolivian natural gas to brazil bolivia exports natural gas to both brazil and argentina uh, which is now even more uh, valuable in in the context of the the conflict in ukraine and because the relations got so poor with brazil that basically the bolivian government because gas is state-owned has basically massively cut down Brazil's quota of, of gas, uh, which has caused you know problems in Brazil, prices to rise, etc. So I think uh, the go- you know the Bolivian government will definitely look to try and uh, increase that quota again, and, you know, as a, as a gesture of goodwill to Brazil. So this is something going to help Brazil as well. Then there's going to be a lot more uh, you know cooperation uh, between both countries. Uh,
0: do you know if uh, if Arce has made any hints about um, deepening economic collaboration with other countries in Latin America, potentially with a new currency. I, I myself, uh, I did a video and I have an article about Lula's pledge to create a new Latin American currency. He, he wants to call it the Sur, which means the South. And he, he made that promise before the election. He said if he won the election, he was going to create a Latin American currency. But now that he's going to be coming into office, we've seen... That um, Andres Arauz, the former presidential candidate in in Ecuador, he um, from the left, of course, he has also um, called for Lula to create a Latin American currency and what he calls a a bank of the South. I'm wondering, do you know if um, Luis Arce has made any hints about that? Of course, Bolivia, for people who don't know, Bolivia is a member of the Bolivarian alliance, the ALBA, and the coup regime withdrew from the ALBA, but the Bolivian government after defeating the coup has returned. And the ALBA, unlike other institutions of Latin American regional integration, like the CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean states, which is political, the ALBA is economic. The goal is to to weaken U.S. hegemony and specifically to weaken the dictatorship of the U.S. dollar. Has has Arce made any hints about that?
1: Yeah, no, so that's a proposal by Lula. is very well received. Um, in Bolivia, I mean, you yeah, know, we've... Uh, talked a lot of like economists and uh, congress people and of the mass who are very very keen on the idea i think they they not want to wait for brazil to take the initiative because bolivia is not going to be the country that uh, leads that initiative because it is one of the smaller countries of latin america so i think it, it'd have to be lula that takes the initiative on that one but i think it'd be very well received definitely another uh important point that the Bolivian government's going to pursue and have said this, that if Lula wins, we want to reactivate uh, UNASUR. UNASUR was the union union containing all South American countries. And it was pretty much one of the only, uh, you know, regional organizations that doesn't include Canada and the US. That's very important. Because the OAS, you know, yes, it includes Latin American countries, but it also has... Uh, the US and Canada, and obviously they just dominate it. The, the OAS itself is has its headquarters in uh, the US, it's just a US organization to impose itself on the region. So, to have an organization like that, but without the Canada and US, was very important. Hugo Chavez was the champion of that, and they included you know, even right wing governments were, were part of it because it has to be every country, uh, for it to be a real um organization. But what happened when, in like 2018, 2017, 2018, you had a wave of right-wing governments coming in and they withdrew from UNASUR to the point where there's like hardly anybody in it. So it just just kind of doesn't exist anymore. Um, But, you know, the the idea is to have, to bring that back if Lula is elected. Because with Lula, obviously, you know, a number of countries have now uh, thrown out right-wing governments. Uh, Obviously, Bolivia overthrew the coup. Peru and Chile, you know, we could. That's a separate conversation about how uh, "quote unquote" left they are. But what has happened there is that they no longer have a right-wing government that's take, you know, that simply writes every, all of their foreign policy. Um, has it written by the United States? I mean, they so. You know, they'll they'll be on board. Uh, obviously, Argentina since twenty seventeen now has. Uh, a more progressive government that is that will definitely be on board for that. So you now have a majority, Colombia, obviously. Um, and so you now have a majority of countries that could do this with now that Lula. Lula's is the, you know, it's going to have to take a lot of leadership uh, on these sorts of questions. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be really exciting.
0: Yeah, I just want to point out some people in the comments are saying that uh, a euro for Latin America would be an awful idea. I want to clarify that. At least what Lula proposed, it would not be that every country in Latin America would have to adopt the currency, the the regional currency, as their national currency. Rather, it would be a currency for trade among each other and for international transactions. Each country would still have their monetary sovereignty, which is, of course, very important if you want to develop your local economy. So, I mean, um, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador in Mexico, he did make comparisons to the EU, but... That, that should not be confused. Uh, they're not proposing. I haven't seen anyone in Latin America propose adopting a, a Euro-style currency. That's not what they're planning. It is simply a way to get off the hegemony of the US dollar, because in most trade in Latin America, trade is still done in the dollar, trade between countries, which is, of course, ridiculous. And if they can create a, a regional currency for trade, I mean, that would be a, a huge boon, especially for regional development. They could cut out the U S they could focus on prioritizing certain industries in each country. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, I think a great idea. Um, well, I've already taken, I've already taken a lot of your time, Ali. It was a great discussion. Um, I guess I'll the last, I'll leave you with the last word. I'll just say um, we'll, we'll start. We'll uh, end where we started with the discussion of the coup attempt. It seems to me that the, the right-wing opposition, the, these fascist forces are already running out of steam. It's only been a few weeks. Um, maybe I'm a little optimistic, too optimistic, but it seems like this is not similar to 2019. They can't repeat what happened What happened in 2019. It seems that the right-wing opposition in Bolivia is much more discredited than it was in 2018 and 2019. So maybe we can end on that note. Do you agree with that? And, and do you think that we've seen the worst of the violence or that we, people should be very careful and cautious and keep their eye out for Bolivia.
1: I think uh, the as the protests are coming to an end now, it's been going on for a month, but it's, it's defeated. Like they haven't got what they wanted or what they say they wanted. They haven't achieved that their own people. So yesterday the Camacho and these com- civic committee people, they, they, you know, called things off called the mobilizations off but a lot of the people that they've been riling up this whole time didn't want to stop because they didn't get what they wanted and so now a lot of them especially the santa cruz youth union which are their thugs but they also rebel a lot of the time uh because they're just so hungry for for violence they were yesterday uh, even going to the house of the president of the civic committee a guy called romulo calvo they're Going to his house, calling him a traitor, uh, having protests against you know their own leadership, calling them traitors. So, I don't, you know, it, it, I think it'll take a few days for things to totally uh blow over to, to totally end. But I think it's you know, it's a defeat, but you know, they flex their muscles. Um, they, they were able to terrorize a city for a month, and I think they know now that they know they can do that, that they're you know. Um, they got the capacity for violence, the capacity to terrorize. Uh, you know, big city in the country. They're gonna want to do it again. I think n- next year, every year they have one of these. By the way, <laughs> they had one uh, last year. I can't even remember what that was about because they always just invent pretexts. It's never, the only aim is um, overthrow the government. So even after the elections, which no one contested the 2020 elections that won by Luis arce no one contested that the oas the eu none of them contested it they're the ones that uh you know set the ground for the coup in 2019 and for these ones they didn't contest it because they're held by the coup government itself with their own uh they completely changed the the electoral organization after those elections they did this same thing the paro civico this lockout just just against the results um like, I think that only lasted a few days because it was really quite ridiculous. But they do this every year. The same thing, they do it every year. Uh, so next year it will be something else. I don't know what it will be about. They haven't invented the pretext yet. It will be about something similarly um, you know, absurd as the current one, Census. So, yeah, I think we've got to look out for it because they are going to I- – I'm sure a lot of them will be thinking that they can do they... – perhaps next year they can come back – stronger more Now they've you know had a practice run now they can come back over some other issue that they make up and with with more strength uh and, and learning the lessons from from this year
0: great well it was a real pleasure thanks for joining me for so long ali it was a great discussion um people should follow ali over at twitter at o vargas 52. And, and I'll let him in a second plug this show that he's doing for people who are fans of uh, football. That is what uh, the, bar- the barbarians in, yeah. in North America we refer to as soccer. But, uh, I mean, it, everyone in the world refers to it as football because you use your feet. He, he has a new show focusing on the World Cup. I'll let him talk about that in a second. And you should also go to com. It's honestly, I think, one of the best – english language news websites i would highly recommend checking out their reporting in latin america and for people who speak spanish you can go to causachuncoca.com for their uh, their reporting in spanish um i'll I'll leave you the final word ali is there anything you want to plug while we wrap up here
1: no thank you ben uh thank you to everyone Uh, uh watched along as well yeah follow us on twitter we uh and yeah we at the moment during this World Cup we've launched the South American football show and for all the South American countries we're uh, doing like a watch along so we sort of commentate on the game live uh perhaps all different fun games uh in between so yeah we, we actually do it with an next professional footballer from Ecuador who now lives here in, in La Paz a friend of ours so yeah man it's it's, it's fun but yeah obviously um, we're still we're still keeping our reporting going at Kausatu News, um, um, you know, on all things Latin America. So make sure to follow us there. And uh, yeah, thank you, Ben.
0: Thank you, Ali. Of course, if you want to support this show, you can go to Patreon.com/slash, Multipolarista, and uh, you should go to Kausatu's Patreon as well and support them. So with that, I think uh, I'm going to conclude this stream today. So thanks to Ali and thanks to everyone else. And I'll see everyone next time.
1: Thank you.